Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Thank you for getting our internet back up and our streaming back up. We appreciate that so that the folks online can listen to us and getting us together uh, here locally is a blessing because it's very good to be with like-minded believers who see the world from a biblical worldview. And so thank you for that, Father. And I just pray that you would bless our time, give us wisdom and understanding into your word. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we'll pick up where we left off then. Um, and I think uh, I left off, uh, I finished number four, right? Uh, Satan beguiles some believers as he did Eve. Okay, so we're gonna move to number five in Satan's work in relationship to believers. And uh, this, this has to do with Satan buffeting um, believers. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The famous passage is about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And I'll read that passage, but and I'll try to explain what this means because a lot of people misunderstand the passage. When and and I, I don't really don't. It's very plain what's happening, but sometimes they they they, they gloss over the interpretation for some reason. Um, the idea of Buffett um, is the concept that Satan or fallen angels or even demons have the ability to maltreat you and treat you with violence and and do physical things to you. So that's a real deal. Just like um, they did to, uh, or Satan did to Job, um, or Satan can inspire other people to maltreat you, uh, just like he does with the internet. We'll have people on tonight that Satan will inspire to maltreat us on the internet. Um, But just in in one-on-one, you'll have people that wanna maltreat you and you know, get in your dish, get mad at you or whatnot. I was talking to Jim earlier at lunch today and he was saying that the Gideons, when they're passing out Bibles, they'll have some knuckleheads come and try to take away their Bibles and push them away and, and give them opposition and hindrances. And that's you know, obviously satanically inspired. But the issue of buffeting has to do with somehow physically trying to hurt you. And we call that persecution, but demons and fallen angels, Satan himself, have the ability to afflict the person if God allows that. And just like he did with Job. So you want to keep that in mind. So here's another situation like Job with the apostle Paul. And I want to read this so we make sure we get the context in it because this is typically misunderstood. And verse 12, I'll read the entire passage so you guys get the context. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. What is he talking about? I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So he's referring to himself as being caught up to the heavenly abode. The third heaven is where God is, okay? That's where the new Jerusalem is, okay? Um, so he says, I was caught up there and I don't know, I don't really know if I was out of my body, in my body, but I just know I was there. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. So paradise is now in heaven, not in Abraham's bosom. And I heard an inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So unlike John, Paul was told not to talk about what he saw. 
okay? Or what he heard in heaven versus what John did by giving us the book of Revelation. So Paul was not permitted. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees to, uh, me to be or hears from me. So basically his idea is, look, I saw heaven, he's saying. I saw what it looks like. I heard, I heard everything in there, but I'm, not forbidden to, I'm forbidden to tell you. But to prevent me, I, I, prevent me from being boastful and being arrogant about this wonderful thing I saw, um, I have to humble myself. And in fact, God's going to humble me because of this. So here's, a, here's the principle. The principle is this. If you are given special spiritual duties and, and special privileges that the Lord gives you because of your obedience and your faithfulness, okay? So you're given special privileges. You're allowed to see special things because of faithfulness and obedience, okay? It's a misnomer to think that God does special things for people who are not interested in him, nor or they, do they have a close relationship with him. So if you're privileged to have that, then... Um, Unfortunately, that comes with a humbling aspect that the Lord has to give the person to keep them humble and not become arrogant. And so Paul is mentioning this. So he goes on, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. So he's using a metaphor, a thorn in the flesh, but the metaphor is, is pointing to a real situation. Now, a lot of people, you know, they talk about their, their, their mother-in-laws as being a thorn in the flesh or, you know, something like that. Their ex-girlfriend, their ex-boyfriend's a thorn in the flesh or ex-wife, whatever, ex-husband, it's a thorn in the flesh. And use, people use that metaphor a lot uh, of just saying, you know, it's like a, something that's irritating me, something I don't like in my life. But a thorn in the flesh is a metaphor for some type of spiritual affliction um, that can end up being a physical affliction. And the spiritual affliction is coming from the demonic realm or the fallen angel realm. That's what people don't want to go into because they uh, get scary for a while. So they'd rather say, well, you know, um, my mother-in-law is a thorn in the flesh. That's really not what the thorn of the flesh means. So here's what people start saying. They'll say, you know, Brandon, um, uh, I have this thorn in the flesh. It's my job. It's my employee. It's, or sorry, my, my employees. It's my, my supervisor. And I've prayed and God won't take it away. Um, or it's some type of health issue. Or... It, it, it's, it's, it's something, you know, I lost my job, it's a thorn in my flesh, whatever. Um, the problem is when the passage is not taken in context, that's what people think that is. But if you read on, Paul actually explains to you what the thorn in the flesh actually is. So he goes on, and you got to listen very carefully about this. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. And then he explains what the thorn in the flesh is. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. So 
a messenger from Satan would be an angel from Satan. It sent, was sent to me to buffet me. Remember what I said? Buffet means to maltreat me or treat me with violence. So he explains to you what the thorn in the flesh is. It's not some mystical thing that you don't know. He's telling you, look, here's what God allowed to keep me from being prideful about what I saw in heaven. I actually have either a demon or a fallen angel that's afflicting me in my personal life, physically. So it's a spiritual entity afflicting a physical infirmity on Paul, okay? And this is where a lot of people don't wanna go. This is where a lot of people gloss over what he just said. They don't, they don't take a messenger from Satan has been sent to me to afflict me. Okay, so what, what, what can that mean then? Well, as you know, Satan can afflict harm. Uh, physical infirmities, uh, demons can, fallen angels can. And so the proper interpretation of a thorn in the flesh is that something physically is happening to you and it's not stemming necessarily from bad health. It's not stemming from even the fall of our bodies corrupting or getting older or getting sick. It's an actual affliction coming from a fallen angel. And, and, and that's what he says is happening to him. Now, then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's a famous passage, obviously, but it's, typical, it's in relation to the thorn in the flesh uh, from a messenger of Satan. Okay. That being the case then, that brings a whole new dynamic to the understanding of a thorn in the flesh. So how do you know if you're being attacked physically by a fallen angel? How do you know if you're being attacked physically by a demon? How would you know? Any clues that you would see? Any idea? Or what would you open you up to a physical attack by Satan on you or a fallen angel or a demon. Why would God allow that to you? He allowed it for the apostle Paul. So none of us in this room are better than the apostle Paul. I mean, Paul's, he's way ahead of us spiritually, but yet he was allowed that to happen in his life. So, so first off, okay, think of context. What is God, why is God allowing this to happen to the Apostle Paul? To keep him humble, right? Okay. So if God allows this in your life, it's to keep you humble. There's a reason behind it because of whatever is happening in your life, good or bad or whatever, you, typically it's a good thing. It has the propensity to make you arrogant and to make you prideful. And so to prevent that, and one of his servants from doing that, even though he's given great responsibility to you and great, uh, great extension of your ministry or whatever it might be, he's got to make sure it doesn't go to your head. So then you will be physically, uh, sometimes will be physically uh, allowed to them for them to harm you uh, in such a way. Okay. 
So that's one of the things you have to think about. It's to keep me humble. Second thing, this thorn in the flesh will not go away until God's ready to take it away. Because Paul said, I prayed three times. And he says he wouldn't take it. In fact, he answered me, my grace is sufficient for you. My powers make perfect in weakness. So we don't know if this ever was relieved in the apostle Paul's life, that this fallen angel kept buffeting him his entire life. It might have stayed with him his whole life. We don't know. We don't know if later on, you know, 10 years from, that, from then, that he was relieved of it. We don't know. We just know at that time, he, God said, no, I'm not taking it away from you at that point. So the issue then is you will not be relieved of this situation until God's done with it. And what God does is he calls off the fallen angel, the demon or whatever, and all bets are off and it stops, just like it did with Job, just like well, it, it started with Paul. So again, how do you know if you're having a thorn in your flesh versus we live in a fallen world and you're just getting sick or you're just getting old. How do you know the difference? How do you know if God is doing that to keep you humble? How would you know that? Yeah, go ahead. I just have a question because like when the Bible was written, illness was different than it is now. You know what I'm saying? With modern technology, we're able to pick things up. Mm -hmm. And so illness is diagnosed sooner and you know more than they did back when in sure. Paul was there. So yeah. illness was looked at differently. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so they would have looked at it more in a spiritual manner than we do now. Do you get where I'm going with this? I think so. So what's happening is because of, of if, if I'm catching you right, because of our medical technology, people tend to see their illnesses from a more medical background rather than a spiritual thing. That's exactly where I'm going with this. Yes. So right. now we're not looking at illnesses in a spiritual way. We're looking at more medical. We've kind of separated the two. Yeah, right. And that, that's why the question I'm asking is, how do you know the difference between is this is the fall happening to my body or if I'm actually being sent a fallen angel or demon to buffet me? And, and you're right, because I think that's the problem, the secularization of medical. You know, you don't want to do it all medical, all spiritual, because you'll make a big mistake there, right? So you, you can go too far on that end. But there's got to be some, some thinking in our concepts of illnesses of whether or not is this because I'm keeping uh, because God's allowing this to keep me back from pride, or am I being disciplined, or or or, or am I just sick? And that becomes the question because if you totally discount all sickness as as being all just all medical, then you might miss warnings to you because the, the Bible obviously you see it all through the Old Testament and the New that physical afflictions were sometimes put onto them by entities and even God himself. I mean, think about this. When uh, Miriam uh, decides to challenge Moses, what happens to her? Was she out in some leper colony and then caught leprosy? How did she get leprosy? God gave it to her. 
just to shut her up and to knock this off about bucking spiritual authority. And so he gave her leprosy to learn her lesson. Now that came straight from God, right? So you can see that God can do those things too to believers. He can make them sick for a temporary time to wake them up. So I think one of the aspects then you have to start realizing is every time, you know, maybe when you're sick, you ask yourself, am I being disciplined? Am I, am I being prideful and God's setting me down? Or am I just suffering from the fall? Right? I, I would imagine that the majority of the time in our lives, probably in the 90 percentile, that we're just suffering from the fall. But how about those times where something's really happening to us that God's trying to say, I'm doing this to wake you up. Because if I don't do it, this is going to happen. Is there possibilities for that? I think so. I, I, I definitely think so. So again, my question comes back to you. How would you know if, if you have been sent a messenger of Satan to buffet you, to keep you from getting arrogant? How would you know? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, Paul knew that it was from Satan. That's right, he did. So whatever it is that he gave him, it was something he didn't have before, and he was aware that it was from Satan. Yes, he did. Now, you're on to something there. There's a clue there. He knew it. So did God tell him? Or did Paul just figure it out? Who told Paul? He doesn't say, and the Lord told me that a fallen angel is coming to buffet my body. He never says that, does he? So maybe God told him, I don't know, it's not recorded, or maybe he didn't. So then how would Paul know? If God didn't tell him, how is Paul discerning this? Maybe because he's an apostle? Maybe? Here, he... So one of the things is he asks for it to, to be taken away and God says, no, I'm not taking it away. You're going to live with this. Yeah, you're on to something, yes. But he prayed three times and he was asking him to take it away. Yeah. And God said no. Yeah. So it's, it's not a discipline, it's a discernment of what he needs to do and putting them in line with God's will. Yes. So catch this. It's an intentional weakening of a servant. An intentional weakening of a servant so that servant never gets a big head. An intentional weakening. That's one of the ideas that you would come to your head. Yeah, Stuart, go over there. You've said before, that uh, people that have had a demon on them and you're talking to them, they start to get excruciating headaches. Yes, they do. Maybe when he was preaching that it would come on during those times when he's trying to share the gospel. Could very well be. Yeah, because he doesn't explain what it does to him, but it would cause him a physical pain, right? Or something like that, physical so, so now we're, we're, I'm giving you clues to say, oh, this is how I know it. Okay, so the first thing is, it's an intentional weakening by God using the secondary source of a fallen angel or a demon to weaken the servant, to weaken the servant to prevent 
pride. It's an intentional weakening in the physical realm. Now, here's the thing. Will it kill you? Oh, it doesn't kill him, Paul. So it, it has a limit on it. So the limit is it won't kill you. The other aspect of, of it is you can manage life with it. Okay, it doesn't keep you down, you know, in the sick bed. It's whatever is on you, you can manage life, you can still go to work, you can still do ministry, you can still walk, you can still continue to function, but you will carry this the rest of your life. You see where it's going? There's more clues. It's not debilitating. So if you're saying, Brandon, I can't even get out of bed, hmm, because this, if he allows it, is only meant to humble you, but not stop your physical activity, not stop you from ministering, not stop you from taking care of your kids, not stop you from taking care of your family or whatever. It doesn't, it's not debilitating, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. So let's narrow down the field. You're gonna live with it, it's not debilitating. You still do all this stuff. It keeps me humble. Now you have a category. It will not require radical surgery. It won't. Because it can't be cured. It won't be cured until the demon lifts the affliction. Does that make sense? A doctor's not going to give you a pill for it and make it all better. You can't do a surgery on it because if it's from God, no amount of surgery will take it away. He's putting that on the person for a reason. Okay, so a pill won't solve it. A surgery won't solve it. No. Now start figuring it out. Think about your own life and put whatever you have in that category. And let's see if that possibly could be something that God intentionally let happen to you so that you could stay humble for the rest of your life because of that infirmity that's not debilitating, but you carry it with you right now. What could that be? I don't know. It's individualized. It's not debilitating, though. You see where I'm going with this? This is when you have to really drill down and understand the thorn of the flesh. Now, some people speculate that, oh, Paul was blind and he couldn't see. And that's, that's, look, I, I understand because Paul says I use big letters and people make a big thing away. Uh, he had blindness or something. Well, I, I don't know, but I'm just saying um, blindness would seem to be a debilitating disease. You know, if you can't see where you're going, especially in that kind of world. So I don't know. Uh, some people say that, that Paul was, uh, had problems walking or anything like that. I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't matter. Whatever it did, it did its function. So sometimes, and I'm not saying all the time, sometimes you need to think in those categories. Am I being humbled right now? And, and you might say, why am I having this, in my, this annoyance in my life that physically that I have to deal with for the rest of my life? Maybe it's to keep you humble. Maybe it's to keep you humble. I don't know. I think you just answered my question. 
I was wondering if this is the same, you know, thorn he was afflicted with as far as the eye problem, that he would not, God would not remove it, and he had to suffer with that all of his life. And I think from what you just said, that's this, what you're referring to, right? I don't know. I, I, that, that, some people conjecture that, but the conjecture is based on him saying, I write in big letters. And it's like, well, that doesn't tell me anything about his eyes. It just says he's writing a letter in big letters or something like that. Maybe his eyesight was poor. I don't know. Maybe his eyesight was poor. Um, but whatever the affliction is, let's say it's his eyesight, it wouldn't be debilitating. He still could function, but it would, it would be, um, let's put it this way. He's going to go through life with a proverbial limp. I mean, I don't mean that literally, but a proverbial limp in his physical life. Does that make sense? That he will always have to limp through life because of this ailment. And I'm using that in a metaphorical way. It's a limp, something, something physical on him that is, is causing him not to function 100% or whatever that might be, Okay. And if you think about your life, you're, you know, are there things in your life that cause you not to function 100%? But you still can get around, you still do your daily activities, but there's something holding you back completely from being 100% where you need to be physically. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Maybe. It's just worth thinking about. It's worth considering. Because if it is, then he has done that to keep you humble. And that's the messaging. It's to keep you humble. Oh, so what, what, so why would, why would, by making someone humble, obviously it's preventing pride, but, but let's take pride and humility. What does pride do to the individual in their relationship with God? Huh? It does, it messes up their fellowship. And, and, and okay, now think about this. What does humility do with their relationship with God? They get closer. Ah, but here's the key understanding of humility and pride and why it's important. Pride makes the person think they are independent and don't need God. Humbleness comes from the attitude of spiritual poverty, that I need God for what I am doing, okay? And so whatever Paul was taught, yes, it's to keep him from being prideful, but ultimately it's to keep Paul in humility, independence to God. So Paul, with this thorn in the flesh, will have to be dependent for God's grace to keep functioning. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in what? Physical weakness. Okay? So what Paul can't do, he's going to have to go to God for that. And so Paul, uh, Paul was put in a situation that, that forced him to be dependent on God. It forces him to be dependent. Now think about that. That's another clue on thorns in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh doesn't debilitate you, but it puts you in a situation that without God, you can't make it. Not without a doctor, not without, you know, pills or, you know, something like that. Without God, you can't survive 
with this affliction, without, uh, with this affliction. You couldn't do it without him. And it forces you to be dependent on him for it. Does that make sense? That's why, so this is why you have to take this and understand, whoa, wait a second. I might be just pushing all my stuff to, it's medical, it's medical, it's medical, it's medical. In fact, when the issue might be it's a spiritual issue. So that, before I move on, any other questions on thorn in the flesh and what that means? Now, most people are very uncomfortable about demons having to do stuff with them, but it happens. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Good. Um, the suffering also is God's tool for building us for a godly character. That's true. And That's true. Also, we also blame, we put it on ourselves while we reap what we sow. That's true too. Those are other categories. That's true. Those are true categories. So God uses suffering. That's why we, he, he admonishes us in the New Testament to fellowship in the sufferings of the Messiah, right? So the more you endure, the more you conform to the image of Christ, right? So that's part of that. And, and those who suffer well receive a crown, don't they? They receive a crown, those who suffer well. And then the other aspect, what, what was the third aspect you mentioned, Richard, or the internet? What was the other one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so godly character. And we reap what we sow. Okay, and that's suffering because of what we caused, the reaping what sows. Yeah, so there's different categories of suffering and what they're meant for. So yeah, absolutely. Where am I at? Oh, okay, right there. There you go. Um, would this apply to depression? Good question. I don't know. Because I know it's like mental, but it is technically physical as well. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I will say this, because um, it, it's what I would do is go before God and ask him, is this that? And let him confirm that, rather than me telling you. But think about this. With depression, some of the greatest preachers dealt with depression their whole lives and never were cured of it. And um, I, I, the story of um, Spurgeon, not, was it Spurgeon? Was it Spurgeon that dealt with depression? Okay, so what Spurgeon did, he was in England at the time. So Spurgeon dealt, he couldn't even get out of bed sometimes. It was so debilitating, but it, it, he, he had to just push through it, right, to go preach. So what, what would happen is it got real dark there in England uh, in the wintertime. And so what Spurgeon would do is go all the way up to Christmas and preach the Christmas message. And then after that, Spurgeon went to uh, Southern France for like all of January and February and didn't come back to England until March. And that was to keep his, himself from dipping so low in that darkness of England, you know, and dreariness. He had to go to where sun was and actually he could recover. So he did that every year. Every year, all the way till he died, because of he fought, he fought that severe depression. So it could be, but that would be something you need to take to the Lord and say, is that this? Now, of course, you know, there's medications to deal with that, but sometimes, as you know, depression will never leave the person. They will struggle with it their whole life. Yeah, and so maybe, it, it, but it's, it's take it to the Lord and ask him. If you, but it's that kind of, you're in the right vein of understanding. You know what I mean? It's not so severe that it would just put you down and you can't do anything. 
You know what I mean? It's like, okay, it's at a level that I can, I have to manage. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, right back there. I believe Paul's thrown in the fresh was a messenger of Satan. And he asked three times that it be removed. And God kept telling him, my grace is sufficient. Yes. Okay, God's grace is his willingness to work on our behalf. So if we look at all the movement of Paul in the book of Acts, and everywhere he went, he was up against opposition to yes. the point to where they would take him out and they stoned him yeah. dead. And at that's the point that I think he was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that he can't utter. That very well could have been. But then in the 16th chapter, there was a lady who was yeah. a soothsayer or fortune teller, and finally she kept showing up at all of his meetings and he finally had enough and it finally dawned on him and he says i adjure you in the name of jesus and it left her yeah and then at that point they were angry because now the guy that owned the lady wasn't making any that's right he was right so and i know for myself uh recently i've been praying uh, over the principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness over California. Yeah. And I've had uh, a severe toothache on my bottom tooth, went to the dentist. The dentist says, there's nothing wrong with your tooth. Um, so again, I, Father, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over this. In Jesus' name, okay, the tooth went away. Uh, then my dog was attacked uh, with something, swolled up, looked like a pelican, just its jowl hanging down. Again, an attack from the enemy, um, trying to get the word out of you. And it's not God that doesn't want you exalted. I believe it's Satan that doesn't want you to rise to the level that Christ wants you to raise to. Interesting. Interesting. Right there. J.D., go ahead. Hello. Okay. Um, I just want to thank you. It's very good, all this, this whole my life this is, because, I mean, I, I was a Lord was a kid, and I got I got pride my whole life, uh-huh. long time, and then then happened here, my my brain messed up there, and then then it takes me years, humble humbles 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 to have humble humble to have before because because this. So thank you for this. I'm, I'm humble now. And and and. You fell off of a ladder, didn't you? Yeah, 35 up. Yeah. 35 feet up? Yeah. And you, you hit your head. Let me, let me see if I can remember that. And you would, they, didn't they count you out? Like, this guy's not going to make it, right? Yeah, they thought so, yeah. They, yeah. And then, and then uh, I, I, the doctor said, I'm going to be passed. So I'll tell my daughters, my dad, see him, he's going to pass soon. Yeah. And then the next day I was up again. The doctor's tripping out. <laughs> so, yeah, just happy. Then I got here in Bakersfield to brain school here. And I've been here for seven years there, but yeah, I can't talk or walk for a while. Yeah, but that's then years and years and years humble all the time for years, and I'm so humble than I have before because the Lord it is sure, so sure. Not, this is perfect. You're saying today is perfect. It changed you, didn't it? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Sure. Yeah. That's no, good. It's a good testimony. You're here. Let JD tell you his testimony. And uh, the Lord really humbled him and, and uh, showed him 
the path, man, from that fall. I mean, it nearly killed him. Any other questions on that stuff? Yeah, go ahead, Richard. King David suffered a great suffering, and God punished him for uh, for what he did. Yeah, I mean that that's a little bit different. That's a sowing and reaping thing, and a, a discipline on him, and the fact that the sword would never leave his family, and it. it it basically, what David did caused chaos in his family. His kids went all crazy, man, because of that. And uh, so you had that. He, the other penalty, he wasn't able to build the temple, even though he wanted to. So he, that, that's more of a, you committed a sin, and now you're, you're going to be disciplined for that sin. So that's a, that's a disciplining aspect. Yeah. Okay, before I move on, are you all good? Okay. Um, then let's move then to number six. Um, Satan has the power of death over the excommunicated believers, okay? So, um, I'll do my glasses. This passage tends to be ignored by many, many churches, and uh, I want to read it so we can understand the context here of why this this kind of stuff is, is uh, important happens to believers and what and what Satan can do to them. Okay, so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's read the let's read the whole passage and you could if you don't have your Bible just listen to it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So what's happening in Corinth this dude's in open sin. The whole church knows about it, and the church and the pastors won't do anything about this guy, okay? That's called open sin, and it's the area of sexual immorality. Okay, so that's what's going on here. And you are puffed up. What does puffed up mean? You're prideful about this. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this th- deed might be taken away from among you. Notice what it says. You guys are like celebrating this dude. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you guys should be sorrowful for what's happening to your church because this guy needs to be taken from you. You hear? You see the passage right there that said that? Um, that he who has done this deed might be taken away among you. What you guys need to be starting to think about is kicking this guy out. Okay, so that's his mentality. Let's continue on. <clears throat> For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him. He judged him. So can you judge a person? Because the outside world says, Jesus said not to judge. He's already been judged. And Paul says this, I have already judged him. Even though I'm not present, I'm judging the guy for you, since none of you guys in Corinth will judge this guy. I'm judging him as if I was there. Can you judge? Yes, you can. What do you judge on? Motives? No. What, what do you judge on? The actions, the behavior of the individual. And this guy is out in the open doing it. Okay? He's out in the open. It's not some secret thing going on. Okay. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is not talking about when you excommunicate someone, you go to hell. Okay, that's the Catholic Church's rendering of this passage. That if, that, that if the Catholic Church excommunicates you, you're going to hell. That's not what he is saying. In fact, what he is saying is, look, deliver him to Satan so that he can have the destruction of the flesh. So Satan, you put him out in Satan's territory, Satan will start buffeting him because of not a thorn in the flesh, but because of discipline, God will, will allow Satan or fallen angels to discipline this guy physically and if necessary, kill the guy, okay? And then he goes on and makes a promise that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And the idea is, look, spirit saved, it has, the, the salvo here in Greek has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with that his that some of his rewards will be saved, that his life will be saved. It will not be a waste and, be, and all his rewards be squandered and lose them all. Because, because if, if, if he can repent of this and be re- restored by the buffeting of Satan, then he won't lose all these rewards. He can get, actually gain his rewards back and save himself uh, in, the, in that sense. The saving has to do with not losing rewards, but saving the rewards, if that makes sense. Because um, if not, you have a situation, the other way to interpret it is like the Catholic Church, and that's not an interpretation that's correct, because then you have someone losing salvation, and that can't be the text. That can't be the meaning of the text. Okay, <clears throat> so what is this idea? Deliver one to Satan. Okay, so according to Hebrews chapter 2, Being in the Messiah protects us from Satan's power over death over human beings, okay? Which means that Satan cannot kill a believer on his own, okay? He has no authority over that because the believer is under the authority of the Messiah. However, in this situation, when a believer is excommunicated from a local congregation, they are now not protected by that authority. And this is the one time that you come under, out, out from under that authority and you are with no authority at that point. And if a believer has no authority, then Satan can attack them and go after them physically and perhaps kill them if they don't stop. And so that's a big deal. Now, the thing about this, he continues on. He goes, your glorying is not good because they're glorying this guy's revelry, right? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know if this starts in the church, it'll go through the entire church, right? That's what he's saying. Therefore, purge, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ is our Passover with sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Okay. What does that mean? Everybody? Let's continue to read it. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world. You see what he said? He just qualified it. He's saying, look, I'm not telling you to stay away from the immoral, the sexual immoral of this world. I'm telling you to stay away from believers who are sexually immoral. 
That's who you stay away from. That's who you break fellowship with. And he continues on. Or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. So I'm not talking about that. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. It's more than, it's more than just sexual immorality. Christians who are drunkards, Christians that are extortioners, Christians that are idolaters. Did you notice the categories he put these people in? He's saying, you don't even eat lunch with these guys. You don't send them a Christmas card. You don't, you don't invite them over for the birthday party. You don't invite them over for Thanksgiving. You don't invite them over for Christmas. When he says, don't even eat a meal with them, I don't know how clear you can be. And yet, no one does this. No one does this. Because the very ones that they will have to do it is their family. And they won't pull it. They won't pull the cord on that one. Now, we can understand this from a church level of saying, okay, there's Bozo back there and he's committing sexual immorality and he's robbing banks. We're getting rid of him. And everyone would say, hooray, get rid of him, get rid of him. But what if it was your kid? What if it was your spouse that's an idiot that needs to be kicked out of the church? What if it's one of your adult children? What if it's your sister? What if it's your brother? What if it's your mom? What if it's your dad? You see what I'm saying? So how far am I supposed to take this? Don't even eat with them. Okay, so let's, let's take it from a Middle Eastern standpoint. The concept of eating with somebody means fellowship, okay? He literally is meeting Talk, don't have a meal with them. But what was wrapped up in the eating was the connotation that we are in fellowship when we eat together. That's why that Jesus goes to the Laodicean church and he knocks on the door and asks for them to let him in because if you open the door, that I will come in and dine with you and you with me. Reestablishing fellowship, not salvation. Okay? So what's happening here is pretty severe. So here's what happens. If you will do this to a sinning brother or sister that will refuses to repent, okay? You are to kick them out of the church, number one. After going th- and that's after going through Matthew 18, right? It goes all the way to the top. You got to do level one, level two, and then make it up to level three. And then the church excommunicates the person out of the church. Okay. So what happens if they don't go to our church? Then what? What if they're a Christian and a family member, but they go to a different church? What can this church do? Nothing. All I can do is warn them. Because I, the Matthew 18 is in the context of that local church that has authority over that individual. If they're part of another church and they, that other church refuses to discipline them, there's nothing you can do other than cut fellowship off. And that's your only recourse, is to cut the fellowship off. Once you cut the fellowship off, especially in the church setting, then they're under the territory of Satan and he can physically harm them, even kill them. 
I've seen situations where parents had to do to, this to one of their daughters, adult daughters, sleeping around, shacking up, the old terminology, and they cut her off. She claimed to be a Christian. She knew that living together with, with somebody was wrong and she kept doing it. So the parents cut her off and it was hard for them because these parents, um, the other people around them, supposedly Christian said, that's the, I can't believe you're doing this to your daughter. That's not what Jesus would do. I cannot believe this is mean. This is, this is evil. And who told you to do that? First Corinthians five. That's not the way it's interpreted. So they did it and they kept me, they kept uh, 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 me monitored. They're no longer in our church anymore. They moved back East. You know what happened? They cut her off for an entire year. And they waited and they waited. And guess what they saw? They saw Satan buffet her. This girl had a mental breakdown after a year. Went into the psych ward in the hospital. Was losing her mind, guys. Satan was causing her to lose her mind. So she goes in the psych ward and she decides to repent. And guess what happens? Everything comes back. Mental illness gone. Her going crazy was gone. It stops. And she was restored back to her family. But I told the parents, I said, I told you it would work. It's the only way it will work. And, you know, of course, they believed after they went through this whole experiment of 1 Corinthians 5, and their daughter is now restored. But it took an entire year, and Satan was making her go literally crazy. She was losing her mind. That's what Satan will do. Make someone lose their mind? Of course he will. He will. Or whatever infirmity he decides to put on them. And she got restored. So I've seen this actually play itself out. If you have to do this, your best bet is to follow 1 Corinthians 5. Now, here's the thing. What does that entail? Are you prepared to do that? That's what you have to ask yourself. Am I prepared to cut them off until they repent? What does that mean, cut them off? Well, okay, let's use the concept, don't have supper with them. Don't have a fellowship meal offering. That means you are not to extend the right hand of fellowship to them. As long as they're in the sin, you don't fellowship with them. That means you don't text. That means you don't call. That means you don't send a card. That means you will not be with them at Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter. You will not be at the birthday parties. That's what that means until they repent. And you can see why most people won't go all through with this because they'll say, I can't see my grandkids. Yeah, I know. I said, so when people tell me that, I, I'm getting hurt, Brandon, by doing this. I said, yeah, did you think that, that you wouldn't have to sacrifice for this? Did you think you, were, you, you weren't, you weren't going to lose something in the process of this? I said, of course it, ca recall, uh, it causes you to sacrifice, but it's the only way to get them back. So are you willing to sacrifice to get your daughter back? Are you willing to sacrifice to get your son back or your mom or your dad or whoever it might be? What are you willing to pay to get them back? 
Because if you're not willing to pay anything, you're not going to get them back. This is the only biblical way to get a sinning believer back in the fold. And you see how, what, what, what is the devil going to tell you? Man, you're being mean. This is not what Jesus was. Jesus was loving. Where did you get this from, Brandon? He's one of those hateful guys. <laughs> I get that all the time. You, Brandon must be in a cult. No, I'm just reading 1 Corinthians 5. I'm just reading 1 Corinthians 5. What does it say? Don't eat with them. Questions now. Where am I at? So I guess the question I have is, um, given, given the passage, um, I can foresee you know, the individuals that you were to present this with, uh, say, in essence, they could hyper-grace it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they could hyper-grace it. Or come back and necessarily say that uh, you're being a legalist, right? And I mean, I guess I wonder. They could say all, yeah, they're going to say all that stuff. Right, they could say all that. But I guess I wonder, is this something that because of the... Like the mega church phenomenon, it's like these things just fall through the cracks because there's really no accountability. Is that something that you would say that plays into this? Number one, and then number two, um, when you were to when you go to, you know, probably execute this passage, execute. <laughs> well, execute it like you know, obediently live it out. I guess you know is what yeah. I'm trying to get at. Uh, they used to execute. In, in the Middle Ages for this. That's that's how they interpreted it, man. Yeah, but I, I didn't mean You know it. what you're saying. But, uh, um, see, because I could see them saying that that they could obviously be forgiven, but yet if there's no repentance, if there's no repentance, and you can see Oh, yeah, behavior, good, good. You see what I'm saying? It's, yes, so, hold it's like on to these that. these things that they want to, uh, they, they may take not forgiving into me. A, yes, that, and then also... Well, well, I'm saved. Well, okay, but is that how a saved individual continues the act? You know what I mean? And so I guess it's one of those things where yeah, I you're, bad you're, teaching it, has that, really caused this Absolutely. Dilemma. You got it. So number one, it's hyper-grace. Okay, the hyper grace movement has infected the mega churches. And in fact, most of the churches practice hyper grace. Now, what, what, what Michael and I are talking about is hyper grace. What does that mean? Well, they'll say it's all under the blood. It's all under grace. Yeah, I know that. But what happens to a sinning believer who refuses to repent? I'm not talking about a believer that says, man, I made a mistake. Sorry, man, I blew it. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about somebody that says, tater chip, let her rip, I'm going for it. And, and it's not looking back. And I don't care if I tear up Jack. I don't care if I tear up this family. I don't care if I tear up the church. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And it's all under Jesus's blood. You fool, you're going to be excommunicated. That is the person we're talking about with arrogancy. Now, what happens, Mike, with the church, since churches don't practice church discipline, that person will never be confronted. They'll say, we're just going to love them back to Jesus. Well, again, I show you this. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. Does it say anything? Love them back to Jesus and they will come back to you. Expel the immoral brother. That is the most loving thing you actually can do. If you want to love them back, that's how you do it. He's telling you, right? But Michael, here's another thing. Now, you mentioned the the, the dual aspect. Okay, okay. Hold on to this. This is important. 
they'll tell you, well, you're just not forgiving. You, you just, you, Brandon, you just, I don't understand. Jesus told us to forgive. Okay. It's true, but what's the caveat? There's two types of forgiveness. That's what they don't tell you. Did you know there's two types of forgiveness? There's a vertical forgiveness and then there's a horizontal forgiveness. Now, now think with me real quick. I can forgive the person unto God and give that over to God, right? Especially if they never repent, if I never get reconciled with them. I, just, I, I, can, I give the penalty phase over to God. And that's called vertical forgiveness. We are all called to vertically forgive, okay? That's not what we're talking about. I am talking about horizontal forgiveness in a situation with a sinning brother or sister. If I can find it, maybe I can't, but horizontal forgiveness is quite different. And a lot of people don't uh, consider this whole thing, if I can find it. Hold on. Hang with me. Hang with me. Please be here. Hold on. I went too far. Okay. I think I got it. Listen to horizontal forgiveness. Two types of forgiveness, horizontal. He said to his disciples, this is Luke 17, verse one. He said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come, right? He says, so get it out of your mind. You think you're never gonna be offended and, and hurt and sinned against. That's, that's not reality. He said, it's gonna come to you, Okay. It would be better, but, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the deepest sea than he should be offend one of these little ones. Okay, take heed to yourselves. Follow, listen very carefully. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Conditional, and if he repents, forgive him. you catch that? What's the conditional on the horizontal forgiveness? If he repents, forgive him. Oh, see, you, you see how clever, back to Michael, you see how clever the mega churches are about this? Well, you just need to forgive. Well, yeah, that's the vertical one, but what about the horizontal, which Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5? The horizontal is you do not offer horizontal forgiveness to that other believer unless they repent. Now, you can forgive them to God and you release the penalty to God, but horizontally, no one gets forgiven unless they repent on the horizontal level on human-to-human -human basis, okay? So, so when they throw that to your face, you've got to tell them that. Second, even if I, they say, you know what, Brandon, I, I messed up. Please forgive me. You betcha. You're forgiven. Now, can we be buddies? No. No. 
But Brandon, I thought it was forgive and forget. No, I don't know where you got that from, forgive and forget. It doesn't say to forget. And number two, it says in the scriptures to get along with people as much as it is possible. So reconciliation, which is what you want, you're conflating reconciliation with forgiveness and forgiveness doesn't conflate reconciliation. I can forgive you, but I do not have to reconcile with you. I'm not called to reconcile. I'm called to get along with people as much as possible. So here, you robbed from me and you stole money from me or whatever. Say I'm a business owner and someone, okay, I forgive you. No problem, I won't press charges, but you're never working here again. You see the difference? And the same is true even in your family. You can forgive family members that are crazy and doing crazy things. And they say, okay, I'm asking you, okay, great. But do not think I'll never have the same relationship with you anymore. Ah, that's what the mega churches don't tell you. Okay, sorry, that was long-winded. Where am I at? I got to go over there. Poor poor Jeff was waiting for me. Okay, um, backing up before all of that, um, it's really the same story as the prodigal son. Sure. It's go out of here. Yep. And then he squanders everything, runs amok, and then finally he comes to a census. Yep. And Lord, take me back. Yeah, you betcha. Put a ring on his finger. Yes. Exactly. Good point. So let me ask you about the prodigal son's father. Slay, you have to cut somebody off because they're just a knucklehead and they won't stop sinning. You're gonna, okay, I'm practicing 1 Corinthians 5. Your cue is the, the, the father in the parable of, of, of the son, the prodigal son. Okay. Ask yourself, when you say, well, Brandon, what should I do? Ask yourself, what did the father do? Not when he came back, but what did he do? Let him go. Let me ask you this. Did the father go behind him and pay his bills? Oh, you, oh that's mean. You, you're not going to pay their rent over there? You're not going to pay their rent? How about their college? You're going to pay their college too? What did the father do? Did the father go, don't worry, I know he's spending like a drunk sailor on leave, but I'll pay his debts and I'll come around behind him and, and you know, I'll, I'll give him the support even though I know he's wrong because I don't want his credit to get bad. <laughs> you gonna do that? No, 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 no. That means you cut, the financial issue is over. You get into a situation where there's someone's getting money from you and they're in full-blown sand. You cut the money off. That's easy. You don't follow them around. You don't trail them. You go into the world. That's it. And you let them go until they come back. And if they're willing to repent and come back, what do you do? Celebrate their return. My son was dead, but now he's alive again. My son was lost, but now he's found, right? You reestablish them. But you must let them go. You must let them go. The person you're dealing with must end up in the pig pen eating pods until they get their act straightened out. So like I told you, the gal that went nearly crazy was in the pig pen. She was losing her mind. And she finally woke up in the pig pen. She says, I will return home to my father. That's how it goes. One more, one more question, we gotta, then we'll take a break. Yeah, go ahead, John. I was gonna oh, say- oh, Two, we'll do two. We'll come back to Tony over here. Okay, I was gonna say- um, You'd mentioned that, you know, how people say, oh, Jesus is loving, you know, what's going on? What I wanted to ask you is, you know, in the Bible, it talks about on two different occasions where Jesus, you know, was so mad at what was going on in his 
God's temple. He flipped the <laughs> tables over. He, when, in one case, he actually made a whip in the corner, drove everybody out by himself. Yeah. And then another example, there's many others, but where a lady was going to be stoned, and he, they, and he said, okay, the, the person who's without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Nobody throws a stone. But afterwards, he told her, go and sin no more. I mean, where does this loving, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips come from all the time about Jesus? Jesus was a man's man, seems to me. I don't know how I physically looked, but as far as um, the way he behaved, he was a man's man. Yeah, so I think you're right. You're, you're, they, the the um, church growth movement, the Rick Warrens of the world, the Peter Druckers, the, all these other guys have feminized Jesus, okay? To, and when they feminize Jesus, they take away his justice. That's what they always will take away. They will keep the love, but they will take away the justice. And you cannot have a Messiah without love and justice or love and truth, right? So they take that away and they make him, you know, they feminize a, a version of him, which is, is in my, my mind, blasphemous to do that, to take parts away from the Messiah or, or attributes, I should say, of the Messiah. They do it because they don't like the truth. They don't like someone getting in their dish like Jesus did. He got in their people's dishes and said, hey, man, you ain't living right. You need to knock that off. The woman caught in adultery, look, the reason he gave her grace, or sorry, the reason he let her off is not because, well, see, God's grace and mercy right there. That's not why he let her off. Why did he let her off? They didn't have enough witnesses. Under Mosaic law, you had to have two or three witnesses that actually had caught her in the act of adultery, and then she could be stoned. They come to her with no witness, or sorry, him to no witnesses, and he's like, dude, I'm the one, he's writing it on the ground, finger, remember what the finger represents? What does the finger represent? Remember that? You forgot already. Where else did you see the finger of God? Yeah, you got your writing on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, oops, arson. But before that, 10 commandments, thank you. He's sitting there writing in the dirt and the, the focus is not what he's writing. The focus is his finger. And you know what he's telling them? I'm the one who wrote it. Don't, don't try to find a loophole that I don't know about. I'm the one who wrote it. And you, you boys, well, let me finish. You don't have enough witness, case dismissed. As the Messiah, he rules on a case, which he will do in the messianic kingdom, right? He rules on the cases. He ruled that you don't have under witnesses under God's law, case dismissed. Then he backs up and talks to her personally as God. And what does he say as God to her? You better stop it. You got off because of a technicality, because they had, but I know you did do it, and you better stop. That's not taught. They'll say, well, you know, that's how, you know, he, he, he just forgave her. And no, that's not what's happening here. They didn't have witnesses to convict her. And then he let her go, but he warned her. So there, there's, that's how you interpret that passage. So why do they do it? Because they are of a different Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. It is cotton candy, let's have a good time, uh, you, know, you know, powder puff Christianity. It's not that way. 
Um, and, and unfortunately, that's what's taken over in America. And so that's what sells, that's what tickles people's ears, and they like it. Because no one ever gets in someone's dish. Anyway, one there, one more, Richard, or where we go? Oh, wait, oh, I got to go back to Tony. Yes, sorry. Okay, so Pastor, how do we, um, we look at Galatians 6.1. Uh, re- you who are spiritual, restore uh, a, a brother in a spirit of gentleness. Yes. So that you're not tempted, because we were already talking about pride earlier. That's right. Paul was buffeted. So how do we line that up with First uh, Timothy five twenty to twenty two? Do we uh, go to the elders of the church with them first before we restore them gently, or we restore, restore them gently and then take them? Well, the hopefully, hopefully. The restoration happens at level one of Matthew or level two. And that, you know, the guy at level one, you know, you go privately to him and that he repents at that stage and says, yeah, shucks, guys, man, I messed up, dude. And then you restore him. Okay, let's, let's put some barriers or boundaries around you. Let's, let's, let's get you some, some help here. And then if you have to go to level two, it's the same thing. You go to level three, it's over. It's game over. It's now in front of the church and it's game over at that point. The only, after that, the restoration would be if the prodigal son wakes up and comes back, then you would restore him. And the part of the restoration is, okay, let's not make that same mistake twice. Let's now dig into why you did this and why you're so flagrant. And then that you restore him in discipleship afterwards, if that makes sense. So basically your restoration would come level one, level two, and then afterwards. But level three, you're at level three, man. The guy's getting kicked out at that point. So I hope that helps, man. I'm sorry. Wasn't it the accusers there that were there accusing her, sleeping with her? Well, I don't know about that. Well, then that's the way. But, they, but they, they, uh, here's what they were doing. They had committed adultery. I, I don't necessarily mean, think it was to her, but when he says he is without sin, this particular sin, then you go ahead and cast the first stone. He's indicting them because they were all were committing adultery, not necessarily with her, but in their own personal lives, which is exactly what the, the, the Pharisees were doing. They would, they would have a, a, a loophole to commit adultery with other women. And they were doing that by divorcing quick, remarrying like in, within a day, and then divorcing them, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying. And Jesus saw behind that, and what, what is that? You're, 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 you actually guys are practicing serial monogamy, and you are committing adultery. By, because, but what did, the, what did they say? If you burn my meal, I can divorce you. And they would actually do that so they can marry someone else. So they were sleeping around with everybody by divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying. Now you think, I can't believe they're doing that. I can, because that's a politician, right? That's a politician. And here's the interesting thing. Islam picked up the practice and still does it today. Oh, you didn't know that. Yeah, they can marry on the weekend and then by the end of the weekend get a divorce from the woman. Did you know that? I wonder where they got that idea. Politicians, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, an, it's an ancient practice. That's where they got it from. That's why he nailed them on the adultery issue. Okay. That's more than what you wanted to know, I think. Uh, So anyway, let's take a five-minute break.